Hello everyone and welcome to Intimacy with the World podcast. I am Dorita Holm, your host on this show, where we explore what really matters to live a meaningful life. In this episode, I am speaking with Diana Winston. She is the Director of Mindfulness Education at UCLA's Mindful Awareness Research Center. She's also the author of The Little Book of Being, which I can't recommend enough. <laughs> She's also the co-author of Fully Present, The Science, Art and Practice of Mindfulness. Diana has taught mindfulness for health and well-being since 1999 in a variety of settings, including in healthcare, universities, businesses, nonprofits, and schools in the US and internationally. She is widely recognized in the meditation and mindfulness world, and her work has been featured in the New York Times, O Magazine, Los Angeles Times, Allure, and Women's Health, amongst others. Uh, Diana is also a former Buddhist nun, which she will tell us a bit about in this conversation, where we touch upon a wide range of topics. We talk about what freedom really is, we talk about the importance of embodiment, and we do also talk about feelings of, of unworthiness and what some of the remedies for that could be. So here is my conversation with Diana Winston. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So Diana Winston, thank you so much for being with me on Intimacy with the World podcast today. My pleasure. Um, so we have about maybe 50 minutes or so to talk about these things that really, uh, I mean, this book, your book, the little book of being, which I think, I mean, I like the title, but I don't think it should be the little book of being, because I think this is such a, I mean, it kind of sounds, uh, oh, this is going to be some really, um, su super, uh, what do you call it? Superficial thing about mindfulness. And it's so absolutely not. It's just the opposite. It's such a, uh, it's been a very, very meaningful book to me. I just want you to know. And if somebody sees us on YouTube, then this is the book. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so maybe not everybody who's listening to this, uh, are meditators. So do you think that you could give, give us just a short introduction to classical mindfulness and then how what you're writing about in this book mainly, uh, which you call natural mindfulness, how they are different? Yeah, I call it natural awareness. Yeah, natural yeah, awareness, um, yes. So it's, it's part of my, like when we think about mindfulness, oftentimes people are taught to practice in a very sort of narrow focused way. So for those of you who haven't done any mindfulness practice at all, I define mindfulness as paying attention to our present moment experiences with openness and curiosity and a willingness to be with what is. And so one of the best ways of developing that ability to be in the present moment is to focus our attention on something and learn to keep it there. And then typically what happens is our minds wander away and then we bring it back and we just keep bringing it back. And it kind of trains almost like a muscle in our mind that trains our attention to stay on one thing. So this is a, an aspect of mindfulness, but I think what tends to happen is people just assume that's it. That's what mindfulness is. It's just focusing on the present moment in this way, but there's actually many, many different ways to pay attention and our attention can be very focused 
or it can be very expanded. And one way you can think about that is if you think of a camera, like a camera can take a telephoto lens photograph, very, very narrow, or it could take a panoramic photograph and it can take other photographs in between. But a panoramic photo, wide, spacious, and this is the same with our attention. Our attention can be very narrow. It can be sort of normal medium. It can be wide open. And so there's this whole territory of mindfulness teachings that is about what I call natural awareness, which is awareness that's much more expanded, spacious, and there are other aspects to it. That's the short version. Yeah, yeah, thank you, yeah. Um, and so now that we have a handle on the differences, would you mind telling us about your experience in Burma when you were uh, you were a nun for a year in a monastery in Burma and when you got so frustrated with classical mindfulness and, and how you solved that? I didn't solve it, it solved itself. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I had been trained in the more narrow focus style of meditation um, uh, called Vipassana meditation or insight meditation. And I've been practicing that for about 10 years when I ended up going to study with my teacher, who's a Burmese teacher. So I went to, it's now called Myanmar, but I went to Burma to practice with him. And when I was practicing, I was doing this classical mindfulness training. I was paying attention to every single moment, you know, very much focusing, keeping my attention on it from the moment I woke up to the moment I went to sleep. So you would wake up and hit the joke he would often say is, did you wake up on the in-breath or the out-breath, right? <laughs> so you had to know this, you had to really know this. And then you would get up and you would mindfully walk to the bathroom and, you know, everything starting from there was mindfulness. Um, and the, and then you spent the day sitting and walking and sitting and walking all day long. And as I practiced that, I was very, very driven. Like I really wanted to do incredibly well. I wanted to get an A plus in meditation. And so <laughs> I just kept working hard to focus my mind to do the first practice I was describing, like stay focused on the present moment, this narrow telescopic and I don't think even that that was the teaching. I think that that was my sort of misunderstanding of the teaching com combined with my own like effort driven personality, like wanting to succeed. And so as I did this over many, many, many months in silence, ultimately ordaining as a Buddhist nun, um, I, I, just, I, I just kept pushing myself. Like, what can I do to practice harder? What happens if I don't sleep tonight? What happens if I sit for another two, three hours without moving? And as I did this, at some point, I just crashed. And I lost my ability to focus at all. And I had all sorts of very strong emotions coming up in a sense of failure. Like, how is it possible that I couldn't even be mindful at all anymore? It's just filled with like shame and guilt and embarrassment. I mean, it was just awful. And um, so I ended up, uh, I ended up thinking I was going to leave and plan to leave. And as I went to tell my teacher I was leaving, he said, fine, leave. He wasn't, he wasn't like the sweetest kind of like, you know, <laughs> butterflies and unicorns kind of teacher, not at all. And he said, fine, leave. But if you do, the, the, the afflictions of the mind will always overwhelm you. Because essentially, wherever you go, there you are, right? Yeah, and you're so, going to be with your mind. It's always going to be there with you. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. So I decided to stay and 
as I started calming down and just, I, I've, I've discovered a way of practicing that was totally different. It, it wasn't, I didn't discover it. I discovered, I read some books about it, but, but basically this natural awareness and the natural awareness in these books were telling me that there's nothing to get, there's nowhere to go, there's no goal. It's all about the awareness that's already existing. The awareness that's present inside of us that if we can just open to it and relax and soften, we will have access to this. And as I did that, something really shifted and I realized, oh, there was this whole other territory I knew nothing about and began to explore there. Yeah. And uh, I always find it kind of astonishing that that these uh, traditional teachers often don't didn't teach that so uh, specifically. Why do you think that is? I think that because I don't think it's because he didn't know about it. I mean, your your right. master at the I don't think it's because he didn't know how to access that natural awareness. Yeah, it's a great question. I don't really know, like I know the answer to it. I mean, I think partially people have their way and they get stuck in their way and this is what they teach and this is what they assume everybody's mind could benefit from. I mean, it's interesting because people say it, it was tended to be the Westerners who practiced there that got hung up in a similar way than I did that would over effort and crash and burn. Whereas the Burmese people, you didn't see that happening so much. And my sense is, at least what people said to me was that the Burmese had a very kind of laid back, relaxed approach already. And so, so they really benefited from the teachings that said, practice, practice harder, practice like your hair is on fire, you know? Yeah. Um, whereas the Americans, or not the Americans, but the Westerners evidently took it way too literally and, you know, really didn't learn how to relax. Yeah, and also we're in the West are very prone to efforting any and striving anyway. So if we yeah. enhance that even more, then it just becomes stressful. Okay, I see, I see, I see. Um, uh, you, you write in your book, I wanted to reach some kind of enlightenment so badly because I didn't want to be me, you said. <laughs> And, and uh, how has, I mean, you'd already been practicing mindfulness for 10 years then. So mm -hmm. has that changed? <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely changed. And it changed quite significantly when I was there. Um, it was only that realization. So I didn't say that, but one of the reasons I was practicing so hard was because there's this whole ideology in these monasteries that you can achieve enlightenment. And in their worldview, it's this erasing, this like kind of uh, uprooting of greed and hatred and delusion. And I, I really wanted to get that. And I think I had this very noble idea of the beauty that would come if I erased greed, hatred and delusion. But I think also like, again, I wanted to get my A, you know, I want to succeed at meditation and get my A. So, um, so I, I really, really pushed towards that. And when I came to that place where I had this like um, um, collapse, it was only through investigation that I realized that, oh, what was driving that desire to succeed? It was this sense of unworthiness, like me as I am wasn't good enough. And that was like a very profound and de sort of devastating realization. But then I also realized that when I started doing the natural awareness teachings, these teachings are like 
the mind is inherently this way. The goodness is inherent within you. There's nothing wrong with you as you are. And so the natural awareness teachings were very, very healing in that respect. Plus, I threw in a lot of compassion, self-compassion practices for myself. So between those two, and then many years of ongoing, continued uh, compassion practices, and also, um, you know, therapy and other tools, I have a very different relationship to myself. I would, I do not feel that way at all. <laughs> Yeah, and that's in in uh, in in some to a, a great extent because of this natural awareness, because of practicing this so much. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So you 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 uh, you write in the book. You talk about just being uh, the ability to connect with a sense of just being is part of what it means to be human. This quality of being is available to us at any time and has always been available. It just tends to get obscured. So here you're talking about just being, the quality of just being. And then you say that that's normally not where we are living in beingness. So where are we living then? And what's the <laughs> difference? I mean, aren't we always being? <laughs> No, <laughs> we're kind of <laughs> caught up in doing and worrying and freaking out and achieving and get, like, like, of course, we're being obviously we're human beings, but, but that that when I say that I'm referring to a state of being of, of like a profound relaxation into ourselves. And most people are not doing that. Most people are. Yeah. So one of the analogies I use in the book is I say, natural awareness is like a radio station that's always blaring and it's this beautiful station that's just hey come come to it it's always here but most of the time we have our dial turned to you know the station of anxiety or the station of grief or anger or you know wkp self-judgment or something so yeah. yeah so so when you say beingness it's like our true being what's underneath all the noise Exactly. Yeah. 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 And 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 when you speak about effortless uh, or natural awareness, you say that it feels like that. It, this is how it feels like. It feels like peace, like joy, mm -hmm. like love, contentment, serenity, connection, and and more. That's what you write. Um, so does that then mean that you think that these qualities that I just mentioned, that that is our natural beingness, that that's who we are underneath all the noise? Um, I try not to make too many speculations for things that I do not know the answer to. Um, I think that I like that vision of the world rather than the opposite. And I think that, you know, philosophers and religious people have debated this for eternity, right? Like, are we inherently good or are we inherently evil? You know, so that, that, that debate is out there, but I prefer this worldview. Um, although I try to, I, I'm very interested in what is our experience. You know, what is the experience? What do you find out when you quiet the noise, when you quiet the like anxiety and fear and you come and you connect with yourself? What do you find? Yeah. And have you, I mean, you've had thousands of students uh, over these many decades that you have been teaching. Have you ever encountered uh, somebody who came to, I mean, often people come to, to meditation because they're hurting, because they're full of anxiety or, or they, they don't feel at ease. And they think it might help. So have you ever encountered somebody who's really troubled or somebody who's even 
has a very afflicted mind who who doesn't experience this goodness, this basic goodness. I think some people the the anxiety or the the affliction is so strong that it prevents them from from accessing it. People also sometimes have very subtle experiences, just like a moment, a flash. And, um, and I think like, you know, the research shows that if you have severe anxiety, for instance, it's very, very hard to meditate. If you have severe depression, it's very hard to do mindfulness practice. So it takes some kind of getting down to a sort of baseline level before people even begin to practice and access it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and when we talk, most people, as, as you were explaining in the beginning about, um, you, you uh, uh, talk about a scale of awareness. Well, maybe you should tell us a little bit first about what awareness is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so easy question. But <laughs> awareness is that cognizing faculty that we have, this ability to know our experience. And what I talk about is, is what I call a spectrum of awareness practices, really. It's both a spectrum of the way awareness works and also the practice, types of practices we can do. So our awareness, like, like I mentioned earlier, can be very narrow, and I call this focused awareness, like a telephoto lens. And then I have, I, I have actually, I, my thinking has evolved a little bit since I wrote the book, but I had it as three categories. For, I had it... Um, focused, flexible, and natural, but now I do focus, investigative, um, choiceless, and natural. And so just very briefly, the focus is, is when your mind is really, really kind of narrowly focused. For example, Investi on the breath. Just right, exactly. The breath. Come back to the breath. That's right. So focus, let's say, on our breathing as we begin to open up, so the camera lens begins to open a little, and then we bring in this quality of investigation. So that might be like, oh, I'm having a strong emotion. Can I be present with that? Can I feel that? And what do I notice as I feel that? I notice that it comes and goes. I notice that it's not personal. I notice that it's, it's a passing thing. Um, then we move into this territory I call choiceless awareness. And that's really it's, it's, this, it's just this way in which we notice things where we're not focused, but we're just noticing whatever happens as it arises. There's a thought, there's a body sensation, then something catches your eye, then a sound, right? Our attention can get grabbed in different ways. And then natural awareness is the one we've been talking about. Natural awareness is this wide open, spacious, I often say effortless, it's not completely effortless, but it's a much more effortless way of practicing. And it's an emphasis on awareness of awareness. So um, emphasis on awareness itself. And that's a really interesting thing to do. Most of the time we're noticing things, then I'm asking people to notice the thing that's noticing the things, right? That's tricky. It's yeah. tricky, yes. Yeah, and also because we often we don't even know what our what our awareness is. It's like asking a fish what water is. He's just yes. living water. We are living in awareness, and yeah, yeah. And uh, you call classical mindfulness effort ba effort based mindfulness. And for example, Loch Kelly, who another meditation teacher who who also teaches this, although he calls it effortless mindfulness. 
it, it kind of sounds a, a little bit hierarchical, like effort-based mindfulness and effortless mindfulness. I mean, the second sounds much uh, better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's why I don't call it effortless mindfulness yes, yes, for that reason, personally. But yeah. um, I actually am pretty clear now, having worked with many people over a very long time, that there isn't a hierarchy, that they're merely different ways to be aware. Just like, you know, a telephoto lens photograph is not necessarily better than a panoramic photo, it's just different. And they're called for at different times in our meditation practice. So sometimes you're taking a, a, you know, you're meditating and your mind is racing all over the place. And the best thing you can possibly do is just notice your breathing in a very simple focused way. Sometimes you have strong emotions and you need to apply a more investigative. Sometimes your mind doesn't want to settle. You were maybe sort of alluding to this, but like your mind is just doesn't focus, but it can just naturally sort of settle back and it feels very wide open, spacious. It's doing its own thing. It's what's called for in the moment. Yeah, yeah, I like that. So we should actually try and be adept at both or, yeah. Yes. Because yes. they have different functions, just like a camera lens has different functions. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then, then you write in the, in the book, you write, the point is to gain the ability to work with your mind in a skillful way to cultivate more and more freedom. So can you talk to us about what freedom, such a big and attractive and maybe even scary word, <laughs> what does that mean to you? What do you mean when, it, when you say that maybe we can cultivate more and more freedom when we gain more and more ability to work with our minds in a skillful way? You definitely are going after the easy question. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's why I like your book, because you write about these things. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so for me, freedom is obviously there's multiple ways of thinking about freedom, but one of them is freedom from our habits, freedom from our dramas, freedom from our suffering, freedom from the way our mind creates suffering, freedom from the, the habitual way in which we grasp onto things thinking they're going to provide happiness or run away from things thinking they're going to get we can get away from it and looking for happiness. And the, there's a freedom that is possible that is beyond conditions, beyond whether you get the thing you want or you don't get the thing you want, but a freedom, a contentment that's available inside each of us. And this comes through this process of letting go. And as we let go, what do we let go into? We let go into a spacious awareness into just this being when, when you're, we're no longer held on, we're no longer holding on tightly. And this is, this is natural awareness, right? This is, and this is freedom, this freedom from like my drama, my belief, oh no, the, everything's horrible. My life is a mess, right? That's freedom. Yeah. And you, you also write that a mind that is not clinging to anything is free. And, and of course, for that to take place, uh, some, some letting go needs to happen. Um, so if it's natural, natural awareness, and, and a natural, when you're, in natu when you're resting in natural awareness, you are letting go. You have the capability of letting go. So if it's natural, why is it so hard for us? To let go. Well, yeah, so another good question, Be, because of conditioning, right? Because of 
for all of our lives, we are, have been taught to hold on, right? To believe our thoughts. You know, my favorite bumper sticker is don't believe everything you think. We believe our thoughts, we believe our emotions. So we, and we live in this world that's all about like the reification of our thoughts, our emotions, and this, this type of reality, like this holding on. And so the idea that freedom comes from letting go into resting in one's being, resting, just coming into center, taking a breath, softening. It's not about achieving, it's not about doing, it's not about, it's none of that is completely contrary to the way the world functions. Of course it's hard. And we're so easily swayed by the, this conditioning and it, it's completely understandable. But when we get tastes of it, when we begin to, oh, wait a minute, I think I just had a moment of peace. Like, oh, it's right there for me. It's not far away. And, and that's the other thing. It's like, everybody has had that experience. Everybody has had these moments where our natural awareness just comes unbidden. So oftentimes when people are out in nature and they're just kind of feeling connected and present and here, or I, you know, some people talk about a lot with animals, like, like just this, that sort of zone you get into with your dog or cat or something. And it's like this, there's this sense of just deep, deep peace and rest. And, and so it happens throughout our day in many, many, maybe not that frequently for people, but people have experienced it in their lifetime. Yeah. And why do you think that it happens? Uh, why do you think that we have more access when we're out in nature often? Um, I, I don't, I don't really know. I think it's, I think it, I mean, there's lots of speculations. It could be that we are natural creatures and we're in our natural habitat when that happens, or it could be that we're removed from a lot of the distractions. It could be just the aesthetic beauty. I mean, there could be lots of reasons, it's hard to say, but even, you know, some of the research looking at like people, people have like way more reduction in stress symptoms in just five hours of being out in nature in a month. Like there's some science showing that. So it's, it's really good for us. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And you, you write that in our modern world, we tend to be living a life of speed and distraction, distraction from what you then ask in the book and then you answer yourself and you say well distraction from ourselves <laughs> so why do you think it is that we want to distract ourselves from ourselves so badly i think it's hard to be a human being in certain ways and especially when we don't have tools to work with our inner lives so someone who has a, uh, who's most of their inner life is anxiety, depression, anger, jealousy, like who wants to be in that? It's hard, you know, life is hard. There's a lot of things that are causing these. It's not like they're just, oh yeah, I woke up today feeling I wanna be depressed. No, of course there's, I mean, the world situation, the economic situation, the political, the pandemic. Um, so it's hard and because of that, a lot of people want to escape what they're feeling. And a good way to escape ourselves is the multitude of things that we do. And it could be addictive things like, you know, drugs and alcohol and so forth. It could be just living these busy, frenzied lives. So we don't have time to 
check in with ourselves. And I remember I had this one uh, old friend of mine who said, I can't walk down the street without looking at my phone because it's too hard to just be by myself. And, and there was that research study, you probably heard about this, where they, um, they put people in a room for like 30 minutes, 15, 30 minutes, and they gave them an option of just sitting in silence or shocking themselves with electric shock. And most people chose the electric shock. Yes, I know. That's so telling, isn't it? It is, yeah. So telling that people would rather have the electric shock than just sitting without their mobile phone or something to distract them. Wow. Yeah. Um, so that, 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 the obvious question then becomes, isn't mindfulness then just another distraction or another, <laughs> another escape? Another doing, maybe. Um, the mindfulness brings us face to face with ourselves and mindfulness gives us, it's not like we're just like, okay. I mean, there are some schools of meditation where you just say, sit with yourself and just, just, you know, that's it. But most mindfulness teachers, as you know, give lots of tools to help people know what to do, how to be present with your body and mind, how to work with difficult emotions as they write, how to cultivate positive emotions. And so these are, tools which we can do to um to sit with ourselves to be with it so it is a kind of doing but it's a doing in the service of being i guess yeah and and why is it why do you think that it's important i mean why not just distract ourselves i mean now that we have facebook and instagram and we have so much on our mobile phones why do you think mind, why is learning to be with life as it is, why is that a better way than, than just scrolling through Facebook and Instagram, which is always there? Why, why do you think one is qualitatively better than the other? I think you're right. I think I'm going to stop meditating and just start scrolling through <laughs> my social media all day. You know, um, this is, I mean, the, the, the short answer is at, at some point it stops working. You know, it's like, it's like how people start to feel overwhelmed people. I mean, there's all this research connecting anxiety to and depression to social media overuse and so forth. So, so these things, the distraction, I mean, one answer is it stops working. The other answer is, is it really fulfilling? You know, and, and I think, you know, as a meditation teacher and that like, like when students get a taste of what it means to find a piece that is not dependent on outside conditions, it's like, oh my God, I had no idea this was possible inside me. And then you want more, right? So this is, this is like part of our human potential, it's what we can do. Yeah, I love what you write here, which plays into this. You say, you say that although even, you, even if you can get caught up in life's dramas, I mean, you, Diana, mm -hmm. you still feel like there is a deep okayness inside of you that is always there under all the turbulence of a hectic and sometimes difficult life. So do you think that th that basic sense of okayness, that underlying abiding well-being uh, and, and trust in your own goodness, as you describe it, do you think that that has installed itself in you because of all the meditation practice you have done? Yeah, definitely. That's because I remember my mind 20, 30 years ago it was not like that. And it's been a gradual process over, over all these decades. So why does that happen? Why, why do you get like an undercurrent of uh, 
a trust in your own goodness and an undercurrent of abiding in well-being. Why does that happen because of meditation? Well, there's, I guess there's lots of ways to think about it, but um, one of the ways it's like, when I think about neuroplasticity and I think about this capacity that the brain has to change, it's like over time and hours and hours, and I've done more than 10,000 hours, right, of, of meditating, it has an impact on my body and brain. And I find that that's more my default setting than fear and anxiety. And, and, and like I mentioned, like in the quote you read, sometimes it's not at the tip of my fingertips, right? It's like, oh no, I'm, my daughter did something. So I'm really upset. I'm driving me. But if I just pause and reorient to the sense of being that's underneath it, it's available. And it's, and I think it's just those years and years and years of practicing it. And, and then at a certain point, it just becomes who you are, like you embody it because it's, it's part of you and it stops being like, I'm making this deliberate effort. It's just, it's just what, what is at, at a certain point. Yeah. Yeah. You do actually talk about, you, you say that awareness, uh, you talk about it as being completely safe and capable mm -hmm. of holding anything and capable of healing anything. Uh, can you expand on that, how that works? There's, there's a way in which a lot of what's hard for us to be present with are things that are scary or challenging in some, in some way. And awareness is this like, awareness I'm trying to think how to articulate this because it's a great question and it, but it's like, Awareness doesn't judge. Awareness is infused with a kind of compassionate holding. So when we can sit with even the scariest stuff inside ourselves, and by the way, I'm not talking about external stuff because it, it brings a whole other set of issues when we start talking about the Holocaust or something like that. We're not going to go there right now. Yeah. But no, no, no. But, but when, we, when we're willing to sit with ourselves, either alone or with another person, because this can be done you know, with the help of a trained therapist or counselor or something, but, but when we can hold ourselves with kindness and compassion, the, the, the challenging parts of ourselves begin to they resolve or they, they feel welcomed and they're not, they're not uh, what's the word, exiled, right? They become part of us and then they integrate and we realize that they were never as scary as we thought they were. So it takes a compassionate, loving awareness to be able to hold these difficulties inside us. And that is a very safe awareness when we can get there. But it takes, it's, it's very, it's very gradual. So it's not like I would say, okay, this person is a trauma survivor, do meditation for six weeks and you should be able to handle your trauma. I would never say that. And my favorite, one of my favorite stories is from the movie, remember, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Jaws. Do you remember Jaws with the, with the shark? Oh, there was this movie about this giant oh, shark. Oh, Jaws. Yes, yes, Jaws. yes. Did yes. I say that right? Yeah. So there's a, there's a scene in Jaws where they, they know there's something out in the ocean, but they don't know what it is. So they go out in a little dinghy and this giant monster comes out and the famous line from it is, looks like we're going to need a bigger boat. <laughs> so you have to have a big enough boat to be able to handle 
whatever the the demon the monsters the sharks inside you so but ultimately with help and with practice we can hold what life brings so what you're talking about is uh really getting to know the capacity of our own awareness and getting to know that we can trust in its holding capacity because we've seen it with smaller things and then with a little bigger things and then a little bit bigger things and do you then think that awareness can hold if we train it enough if we trust it enough and get to know it well enough uh, that it can hold any internal demon I think so, but some things we might need help. Yeah, yeah. I'm not talking about like if you have schizophrenia or something really right, pathological. Right. I, I just mean normal life uh, demons. Yes, I have seen, I mean, in my own self, I have been, you know, I've seen the gamut of murderous rage to like profound compassion. You know, it's all in there. And I have found that my practice can meet it. Like it can all exist within this great spacious awareness. It's all possible. And there are times in the many, many years I've been practicing for 30 years when I have had to go to a teacher and say, I don't know what to do. This is too big for me. And then I've gotten support. So I, so, so I wouldn't say like, it's like a hundred percent, we can do it ourselves. That's why we have each other. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, you you also say then that uh, there that one could say that there are basically two modes of being: caught or free. <laughs> <laughs> so what what uh, I suppose you I suppose you elaborated on that when you talked about uh, freedom. But let's so let's bring it personal. Do you after 30 years of uh, practice, do you ever get caught? Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, so what do you do when you get caught when you get very angry or jealous or feel envy or frustration or stress? Um, well, initially, I might just be caught and not even know that I'm caught. You know, I might like my daughter, I don't know, she wasn't going to sleep the other night. And I was really, really tired. And she wouldn't fall asleep. And I started to get more and more annoyed. And I know that's the worst thing you can possibly do. Because the more annoyed I get, the less she's able to fall asleep. So I was caught. And then at some point, I realized that, oh, wow, I'm caught in this afflictive emotion. I can work with it. And so I began, I, so getting uncaught in a sense is about practicing with it. And it might be different things. And this is where we talk about the spectrum of awareness practices because different approaches help in different ways. So I could have done a more, I, I don't know what I did that particular night, but, but a very focused awareness. Like I might, maybe if I just walk out of the room for a few minutes and notice my breathing, just be with my breathing that sometimes works and then I come back in the room and I'm much calmer in their presence for her or maybe I do a more investigative like wow I'm really feeling angry what's happening my stomach is clenched my heart is racing I feel really tight okay breathe and notice that and letting that go I might use a little self-talk like calm it's okay Diana you know it's better if you don't get too angry right like bringing in what I this is what a practice I call 
enlisting the wisdom mind. It's when we're mindful enough, we can access that wisdom part of our mind to help us know, you know, how to respond. And then a fourth or third, fourth, I think I might do to get uncaught and to free up is, is to just rest in awareness. Like just, just say, you know, it's right there. You can just be with it. She's, she's going through her thing, but you don't have to get sucked into it. Just can't just be and be present with her. And that sometimes works too. So there, I gave you four things that one can do. <laughs> and one thing that I, I imagine I, uh, that I, I experience, of course, is that because when you're sitting every day meditating, you are watching your mind. So if you do that for an hour every day, you are used to knowing where your mind is. Where's my mind now? What's my mind doing now? Where is my mind now? You do that on for an hour every day on the meditation cushion or 20 minutes or 10 minutes or whatever. Then you get into the habit of knowing where your mind is. So I imagine that you, you uh, catch yourself very fast or much faster than if you didn't and say, oh, I'm caught now. What can we do? Yeah, I think that's definitely true. That you're lost for less time, I imagine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, you write that decades ago, you asked one of your teachers how to make natural awareness increase. <laughs> and he replied that natural awareness doesn't increase, <laughs> but that clinging lessens. So have you, uh, have you, is this your experience? Well, this is the association between the letting go and natural awareness. And um, yes, it's definitely my experience. And that it's like, if you try, okay, I'm going to practice natural awareness now, do it now. There's, it's, it, it just ties you up in knots. You don't kind of get anywhere. But if you soften and just let go into the moment there's more and more freedom that arises and so I really trust this process although it's taken time to get there in in your book you have this this book is is uh, uh everything is perfect about this book except the 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 title it shouldn't be called a little book because <laughs> this is not a little book <laughs> there's so much wisdom in this book and it's very very accessible and it's very funny Diana is very funny in her writing mm. Um, so you have all these um, glimpse practices and these glimpses are very small practices that are made for us to sort of wake up and come and fall into natural awareness. Uh, could we, do you remember, do you have one glimpse practice that you could uh, say to us and maybe the people who are listening can sort of just sit and listen and see what happens to their mind as, the, as uh, Diana sure. has the glimpse? Yeah, I'll do a practice I often do just with when people are just learning, learning it. Um, okay, so wherever you are, just take a moment to, you can go inside, you can close your eyes if you want, you don't have to. Maybe take a few breaths. Feel your feet on the ground. And let yourself bring to mind a time in your life where you felt maybe something we've been talking about, a sense of ease or peace or deep relaxation or goodness, connection, 
This could be when you're in nature or with a dear friend, with animals, with a baby, in the middle of athletic activity or creative activity. Just see what pops into your mind, anything. And if you've never had an experience, you're not sure, just imagine what it might have felt like. So see if you can really remember this time or place. Where were you? What could you see, hear, smell, maybe taste? And what did it feel like? What did it feel like inside you to have this peace, this ease, this softening, this sense of kind of a fundamental well-being? And if you have a just even a little glimmer of this, really let it grow, let it spread. and rest here for a moment. And then let's feel our feet on the ground. And if your eyes are closed, you can open them. Thank you. Oh, it's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so before we end, uh, I just, the last part of your book, because your book is uh, divided in three parts, is uh, about embodiment. So I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit what embodiment means, what it is. I mean, we are always in a body, you know, and, and why it's important for us. Yeah, well, I'm really talking about kind of a conscious embodiment that a lot of us have become these heads with bodies dangling from them. And especially since it's such a virtual world that we're in these days. Uh, so that it's important of, of, of living more in an embodied way and then also taking these practices into our lives. So it's not just something we do when we meditate, but it becomes part of our lives. And so I gave a lot of different practices and ideas of one that involved like noticing the natural awareness that's already present that you don't have to like search around for but it's right here and then exercises that you can do to bring it into your daily life like when you're washing the dishes or talking with another human being or there's there's many choices yeah yeah but this um sometimes i, th I think that some people have the idea that meditation is like a, an, an up and out of the body and what you're talking about is is not that is it no it's more down and in why is that important to 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 feel uh, to to have to feel our feet on the ground as you were saying twice in the meditation in the beginning mm -hmm. and in the end you said feel your feet on the ground why is that important i guess just because this is this is it. We got one life here and we want to show up for it. We don't want to miss it. And we can live this life with ease and well-being and joy and connection, or we can live with anxiety and fear, disconnection and distraction. And we have this choice. 
And so the more embodied we can be, the more we're going to, we may have to work with the difficulties to get there, but there will be a time and place where we will come in and find that this body can be a place of joy and connection and presence. And it's right there. It's available to every single one of us. Uh So is presence, when we talk about mindfulness, people know that while mindfulness has got something to do with living in the moment, and that's a good thing, apparently. Uh, So is, is uh, what, what is presence? Has it got something to do with this embodiment? I think it's basically the same thing. You know, it's, it's, it's this, I mean, I think of presence more as like the qualities of awareness that are here, that you feel it like a kind of presence inside us, or you can even experience it in another person, but it's the same. It's all the same in my mind. Yeah. Okay. I, I, uh, yeah, I just want to um, encourage everybody, if you're interested in mindfulness, whether classical mindfulness, because in this book, she also speaks about classical mindfulness, the, the one that we have often heard about, but focusing on your breath and the sensations as they come and go. Um, I really, really encourage you. This book is, is just wonderful. It's such a good introduction and for experience um, because it's written in such a delightful way and it's very humorous. So mm-hmm. I really recommend this book. Diana, thank you. Thank you so much for being with me today. My and pleasure. I know that we're in COVID time and uh and that times are difficult and so on. But I, I, I actually, it was a conscious choice not to speak about those things today okay. <laughs> because we do so much, you know, and I thought I just really want to speak about this book. <laughs> oh, well, it's so great. And it's, also, you know, you write a book and then you sort of put it away. So it's great to like hear my words. Oh, I said that. That's right. <laughs> I didn't even remember. So, yes. Really, really fun to, to explore in this way with you. Appreciate it. I really hope you enjoyed this episode with Diana Winston, former nun, director of mindfulness education at UCLA and author of one of my favorite books, The Little Book of Being. Diana's website is dianawinston.com, where you can check out her different offerings if you are interested. And thank you so much for listening to Intimacy with the World podcast with me, Dorita Holm. And please be sure to subscribe on your podcast provider or on YouTube. That way you will get notified every time a new episode is released. If you were with us on YouTube, I appreciate it if you also make a comment and tell me what inspired you or just what made you think. You are also, of course, very welcome to visit me on my website, doritaholm.com. Right now I am offering an online course starting on the 2nd of February 2021 about mindfulness and our connection to nature and our inner wildness. (laughs) And if you feel stuck in your life, you can also sign up for a free half-hour coaching session with me to see if we are a good match. Thank you again for listening and see you next week with a new episode. Be well.